Okay, well, thanks very much for the invitation. Thanks for uh, letting me come and speak here today. Uh, let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Just commit this time of study to the Lord. Well, Father God, we just thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for so many things. Lord, we thank, thank you firstly for our salvation. Lord, we thank you that we have the freedom to meet today as we do. And Lord, as we come before your word now, Lord, we come humbly. We want you to speak to us, to teach us through your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, we want to be excited about you, about the things of you. Uh, Lord, just this morning, bring home to us the reality of the faith we have, Lord, of the hope that we have. Stir our hearts, we pray. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as Steve said, I'm uh, currently pastoring at... um, Calvary Chapel down in Portsmouth, um, but for many years uh, I lived, I was born in Deal in Kent, uh, as Steve also said, and, and it's the fellowship there, whenever we had guest speakers, my dad is the pastor, always used to say, you know what, whatever the Lord lays in your heart, just, just come and speak the message that you would speak if you could speak just one message. And when Steve asked me to come and speak here, I thought, well, what, what is it that, that I would like to share? Um, you know, uh, over the years, there's all sorts of great, wonderful things that, that you know, we can go through and we can study in God's Word. Um, but I really thought, if I could just bring one message, um, this is the message I would bring. Um, and it's really just to talk about the Bible, the Word of God, because it is the foundation of what we believe. Up at the conference uh, in Malvern we were going through in second Peter uh, and Peter there in that second epistle just speaks to the the people he's writing to and really us as well saying that he wanted to stir up their minds um, and in a sense that's what I want to try and do you know specifically Peter was stirring up their minds in regard to the reality that Jesus is coming again um, this morning I want to just take that but look at it in terms of stirring up your minds in regard to the Bible itself, the Word of God, the living Word of God. Uh, in Job 23, we're just going to use this as our kind of springboard text for this morning. Uh, verse 12 says, I have esteemed thy word, or the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. What a statement that is. I mean, Job's saying that, that God's words are more important to him than to the food that we eat. Actually, if you look at the um, the Hebrew, uh, the, the word esteemed there really means to cover over. And it's, it's really saying, I've not covered over or put aside God's words in favor of anything else, even food, which is vital for our survival. And I just challenge you this morning at the start of the, the session here, you know, how important is God's word to you? You know, do you see God's word as being more important than food itself? You know, we go on and look at other scriptures. We've just been praising God, and and praise is wonderful. We're commanded to praise, and through eternity we'll be praising God. You know, this psalm, though, Psalm 138, verse 2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. But then this incredible statement we have, For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. That places God's word in a really important place. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus, when he's tempted by uh, the devil in the wilderness, said that it's written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Interesting, every word. We'll talk more about that in a second. 
in uh, Hebrews 4.12, of course, we're familiar, I'm sure, with this scripture. For the word of God is quick and powerful. That's living. It's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing, dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It's really dividing between body, soul, and spirit. Dividing between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. That's what the Word of God does. And it's a discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's interesting how many non-Christians just don't like the Bible. But they don't have a reason. But it's something that it just grates on them. When I was preparing for the uh, session I taught at um, um, Malvern yesterday... I came across this quote by Spurgeon. It was in reference to one of the things that Peter says. Um, Spurgeon just said this, Peter believed in the inspiration of the very words of Scripture. He wrote that you may be mindful of the words, the very words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Oh, says one, but words do not signify. It is the inward sense that's really important. Exactly so. That is just what the fool said about eggshells. He said that they did not signify. It was only the inward life germ of the chick within that was important. And so he broke all the shells and thereby destroyed the life. If the words could be taken from us, the sense itself would be gone. What I want to try and convey to you this morning in this short time we have is that just as Jesus said, every yod, that's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, every tittle, that's the little decorative hooks above Hebrew letters, that every number... Every place name in the Bible, every detail in God's word is there by deliberate supernatural design. And that should change the way we look at the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said that, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Patrick Henry, a Bible commentator, said this, The Bible is worth all the other books that have ever been printed. Napoleon uh, said the Bible is no mere book, but it is a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. Immanuel Kant said this, he said, I believe that the existence of the Bible is the greatest benefit to the human race. Any attempt to belittle it, I believe, is a crime against humanity. Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table, but place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly hopelessly. Professor Monterio Williams said that, you know, just showing that the Bible is so radically different than any other religious book that exists. This book had to be written by one of three people, good men, Bad men or God? It couldn't have been written by good men because they said it was inspired by the revelation of God and good men don't lie and deceive. It couldn't have been written by bad men because bad men would not write something that would condemn themselves. So it leaves only one conclusion. It was given by divine inspiration of God. John Wesley said that. You see... We've got the Bible, but how does God authenticate his word? How does God authenticate the Bible? I mean, how do we know that this is really from him and not some kind of contrivance or fraud? You know, we've based our lives on this book. Yeah, we should at least have an answer to that question. You know, and it's not good enough to just rely on what we think or or what we feel. 
That's not a, a good response to that question. You know, you can't just say, well, my parents believed and they told me and I believe. You, you can't just say, well, Steve believes, you know, John believes, so they must know, you know. You know, we, we've got to have a little bit more substance than that. It kind of leads on to a, an area of study called epistemology. It's really the, the study of knowledge, its scope and its limits. And really the question is, how do you know what you know? I mean, just about anything. You know, what is the basis you have for what you believe? You know, the majority of knowledge is actually faith-based, if you actually stop and, and think about that. You know, you believe things that you haven't personally verified yourself. You've accepted things that other people have told you. It's someone else's belief or their position. You know, and it starts, of course, with your parents. Your parents say things and you believe it. My girls are, are learning that I kind of have a kind of like sarcastic side of uh, me with kind of humor. Often I'll say things and they go, Daddy, do you really mean that? And they're kind of starting to, to figure that out. But, you know, we, we grow up and we learn to trust our parents, don't we? We accept what they say, and very often without questioning. And then we get to school, and our school teachers will tell us things, and they must know, right? Yet when, when you were in school, didn't the teachers seem old? Now when you look back, and I've got three daughters, my oldest daughter's uh, nearly 10 years old, and I look at the teachers, and they, they seem so young. But, you know, we kind of grow up and we think that our teachers know all sorts of stuff and we just accept what they believe. But, you know, teachers are told what to teach. And they're taught what they're going to teach. And sometimes that happens without really checking information. And, of course, further education. And then we've got the media. You see, we get lots of input from other people. And most of what we accept and believe, we do it on the basis of faith, just trusting that what somebody else has said is right. And by the way, let me just say, we need to be extremely cautious of the media nights, okay? Because we get fed a lot of things by the media that is not true. We need to be very careful what we listen to and what we take in. But you see, the Bible itself exhorts us to think soberly. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that. Yeah, and particularly in regard to our faith choices, i.e., whom are we going to trust and what do we trust? Yeah, so let me just ask you the question straight away. Do you believe the Bible's true? You know, I'd hope for everybody here this morning, the answer to that is yes. You know, if not, what is your foundation? You know, when people challenge you about what you believe, throw it back at them. Okay, so what do you believe? What is your foundation for life? What are you basing everything on? Your own opinion? It's kind of a, a dangerous ground to build on because we've all experienced times when our opinion has been shown to be wrong, even men. <laughs> you know, we, we get things wrong. We have a very strong opinion about things at times, don't we? And then we kind of find out actually that that was wrong. So we have to be very careful sometimes if it's just opinion-based. You know, or the opinion of others. And really that's even worse. It's very, very dangerous. You know, we've got a world that bases everything at the moment on a, a worldview that rejects God, that says that we're here purely by, by time and chance. You know, the, the world's book, in a sense, that's kind of led to where we are today, really is written by Charlie Darwin just over 150 years ago. And it kind of says that everything came about from nothing. It says that we exist now as purely a process of random processes. And that things will produce things other than they are. You come to the Bible, what does the Bible say? It says, in the beginning, God. Well, it gets that right because there was a beginning. We know that scientifically. And, and there has to be a time where there was 
no thing because things decay. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that. So if there was a time when there was no thing, there has to have been someone. The Bible says in the beginning God. And then it says created the heavens and the earth. In that sentence we have time, space and matter. And people say the Bible is not a science textbook and it's not. Of course it's not because it doesn't change. Science textbooks change all the time. You know, so the Bible we can trust. The Bible says countless times in those opening few chapters that everything will reproduce after its kind. Now, should we just look, just don't want to go off, off tangent here, but this is 30 seconds. I just want to disprove evolution and you can help me do it. What would you get from an orange tree? Anybody? Okay, oranges. What would you get it from an apple pip? Apple tree. What would you get from a strawberry plant? What would you get from a mummy and daddy sheep? Anybody? You're pretty convinced about this stuff. You know, that you're not hesitating. You're just kind of firing these answers back. Okay. If you put a... You go to a garden centre, you buy a little packet of seeds and it's got a sunflower picture on the, on the cover and you put them in the ground. What would you expect to get? Would you expect to get a frog? Anybody? Hands up if you think you'd get a frog from that. You, you know that's stupid because it will only ever produce what it is. It will only ever produce what it has the information to produce. We all know, whatever level of science, understanding or education we've had, the things will only ever produce what they are. Well, that's what the Bible says. Darwin said that things produce something other than they are. There's no evidence for it. We all know in our hearts and minds how stupid that is. The evolution just doesn't make any sense. You know, and you come to God's word. Everything God's word says makes sense. You know, but far more than that. We're looking to Peter one sixteen. It says, Peter says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. This stuff isn't made up. He says, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, look, we were eyewitnesses. You know, in a court of law, an eyewitness is a very powerful witness indeed, very powerful testimony that's given. We go through, look at the New Testament in the beginning of Luke. He says, for as much as I've taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which were most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were, notice what he says, eyewitnesses. The Gospels came about from eyewitness accounts. At the beginning of the book of Acts, again, Luke says there, the former treatise I've made of Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that he threw, the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, that's his death and his resurrection, by many infallible proofs. That's the basis of what we believe. It's eyewitness accounts. It's infallible proofs. It's things that we can be verified scientifically and historically. Again, when they were trying to choose a replacement for Judas, they wanted somebody who had been a witness with us of his resurrection. Someone who had been there right from the beginning and had seen all those things. It wasn't just going to make it up. John's gospel, sorry, John's uh, letter, uh, 1 John Chapter 1, verse 1 says, That which was from the beginning. And notice what he says here. Which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes. And which we have looked upon. And our hands have handled of the word of life. I mean, this is empirical evidence. Evidence that can be verified, is tested. Well, God himself also gives us other ways that we can test his word. In Isaiah 46, he says, Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is none else that's a bold statement it's a statement that's not politically correct today 
but this is God that says it, so that's okay. He says, there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And this is one of the tests that he gives us. He says, declaring the end from the beginning. That's one thing that God does that no one else can do. Because God is outside of time. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now, there are a couple of really important discoveries that we make about the Bible. Firstly, it's an integrated message system. I'm going to show you that in a moment. We've got these 66 separate books which have been penned by 40 or so individuals over roughly a couple of thousand years. But again, as I said earlier, in which every detail is anticipated by deliberate, skillful design. And again, it's provably from outside our time domain. That's an incredible statement if you stop and think about it. The Bible that we have has been given to us from outside of our time. Psalm 119 says that God's word is settled in heaven. The Bible tells us the end from the beginning. It's one of the tests that God gives us. Now in Second Peter 1.19 it says, We have also the more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. It's interesting that statement, the more sure word of prophecy. Peter's comparing that with his experience of the transfiguration. If we had an experience like that, we'd be talking for months, for years about what had happened. But Peter says we've got something even more sure than our own experience. And he says that that's prophecy. Now, actually, when we look at Scripture, we find we've been given two witnesses to the truth of these things. We've got the law. The law is given to convict us. That's what Paul makes very clear in the book of Galatians. And the prophets to convince us. You remember in Luke 16 where we have the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man dies and wants to go back and, and share this truth that he's now understood with his brothers. And he's told they have the law and the prophets. Those two witnesses. There's an interesting tie-up in Revelation chapter 11 with two witnesses that will come back and preach, one seemingly representing the law, one seemingly representing the prophets. But we have those two witnesses. Very interesting. Again, Isaiah 57. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. God is outside of time, outside of our time domain. Now, I just want to show you a few of these things that hopefully will really stir your hearts and excite you. Some of you may have come across and seen these things before. But in the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 5, you've got a long list of names. If you've ever gone through it, you probably, if you read through the Bible every year, and I'd encourage you to do that. It's kind of like, yeah, 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 you keep going on. It's a chapter of death. Everybody dies, with the exception of one individual, which is, of course, Enoch. Enoch is raptured or translated taken alive from earth to heaven. But that's the the list of names we've got. And we really find that just as was told Adam in the garden, that as a result of sin, man would die. And this now is a chapter that starts to say that this is the, the outworking of sin. It's a chapter of death. But the really interesting thing is the names that we have and the order in which they, they appear. This is just a genealogy that's given. Now, just want to take one of those names, Methuselah. Methuselah, according to the Bible, is the oldest man that ever lived lived to 969 years old, and people go, oh, that's impossible. Really? In a world with a very different climate, where there was no sickness, there was no disease at that point, there wasn't any of the genetic problems we have today, there was much healthier diets, so many factors you start to look at, and you realize that's probably not as far-fetched as maybe people would suggest, and there's actually lots of historical evidence to corroborate that as, a, as an aside. But the, is the, Matthew's name comes from two... Hebrew roots, muth, which means death, and shalak, which means to bring or to send forth. So literally, his name means his death shall bring. Well, that's incredible. Because when we look at 
Methuselah's life. When he was 187 years old, he has a son called Lamech. At the age of 182, Lamech has a son called Noah. Now, we're told in the Bible that something very significant happens in the 600th year of Noah's life. Well, the 600th year of Noah's life was also the final year. It was the year that Methuselah died. It was the 969th year of Methuselah's life. It's the year he died. It was the year the flood came. His name means his death shall bring. It's no surprise, therefore, that he has that longest lifespan. It just speaks of God's mercy. How incredible that is. But there's, there's far more than just that. And we look at these names again. We've already told you what Methuselah means. It means his death shall bring. Adam, no secret, the name means man. Seth, again, we're told in the text, he was appointed. He said, the Lord has appointed me another heir instead of Cain. Sorry, instead of Abel who came slew. Enosh, his name means mortal. You know, people were starting to realize that they were mortal. And, you know, so Seth names his son. You know, son, we've got a great name, mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Can you imagine the conversation between Enosh and his wife? And, you know, what should we call our, our lovely little baby boy? And she says, sorrow. Yeah. Mahalalil, that's a good name. You may recognize the E-L-L at the ending, like Daniel and so on. It just is the name of God. But his name means the blessed God. Yared, his name means come down. And it's very interesting. There's a, a, lots of interesting side studies you can do from these things. But it seems that in Jared's time, there was a very strange event that's recorded in Genesis 6 that started to occur. I'll let you do some study if you want to on that one yourself. Uh, Enoch, well, we're told in the New Testament, that he was a teacher. And we know that that's basically what he did. He was a preacher of righteousness for that period of time until God took him. Lamech, we have an English word, lament. It's the same root. It means despairing. And then Noah, well, as Lamech named him, his name means comfort or rest. I don't know whether you see that. But if we put that together in a sentence, we have man is appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. That's staggering. That's the Christian gospel concealed in a genealogy two and a half thousand years before Jesus came. Yeah, and there's no way that rabbis or scribes would try and conspire to do this, nor could they, even if they'd have tried. This happened even before Moses, before the law, before these things. Again, it's just undeniable evidence of the supernatural origin of the Bible. But there's more. In Genesis 10, we've got a list of names and it's the, the nations. And a lot of critics over the years have said, oh, that's just mythology, it's fiction. Even one prominent Christian evangelist told me once that the first 11 chapters of Genesis were just Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. Uh, he was a little confused, clearly, and not read very much because that's just not the case. As a friend of mine is a wonderful historian uh, by the name of Dr. Bill Cooper. He wrote a book many years ago called After the Flood. And he started off with this kind of challenge to see if he could disprove the Bible. He wasn't a Christian at that point. And he thought, I I'll take that list. If I can show that that's just fiction and it's not true, then easily, job done. Well, this is what he, he comments. He said, it's commonly thought that in his present age that nothing is worthy of our belief unless it can first be scientifically demonstrated and observed to be true. It was assumed without further inquiry that nothing and especially the earlier portions of the biblical record, could be demonstrated to be true and factual. And this applied particularly to the book of Genesis. 
In other words, we were solemnly assured in the light of modern wisdom that, historically speaking, the book of Genesis was simply not worth the paper it was written on. On the other hand, I had the Bible itself claiming to be the very word of God. And on the other, I was presented with numerous commentaries that spoke with one voice in telling me that the Bible was nothing of the kind. It was merely a hodgepodge collection of Middle Eastern myths and fables that sought to explain the world in primitive terms. Now, it simply was not possible for both of these claims to be valid. Only one of them could be right. So, it was that I decided to select a certain portion of Genesis and submit it to a test which, if applied to any ordinary historical document, would be considered a test of the most unreasonable severity. And I would continue that test until either the book of Genesis revealed itself to be a false account, or it would be shown to be utterly reliable in its historical statements. What I had not expected at that time was the fact that the task was to engage my attention and energies for more than 25 years. The test that I devised was a simple one. If the names and the individuals, the families, the peoples, the tribes listed in the table of nations were genuine, then those same names should appear also in the records of other nations in the Middle East. It was simply not realistic to expect that every name would have been recorded in the annuals of the ancient Middle East and would also have survived to the present day. I therefore would have been content to say you found 40% of the list vindicated. In fact, that would have been a very high achievement given the sheer antiquity of the Table of Nations itself and the reported scarcity of the surviving extra-biblical records from those ancient times. But when, over my 25 years of research, that confirmatory evidence grew past 40% to 50% and then 60% and beyond, it soon became apparent that modern wisdom in this matter was wide of the mark, very wide indeed. Today, I can say that the names so far vindicated in the Table of Nations make up over 99% of the list. And I shall make no, other, no further comment on that other than to say that no other ancient historical document of purely human authorship could be expected to yield such a level of corroboration as that. People, we can trust the Bible. We really can trust the Bible. I think a short while ago you did a, a study in the book of Ruth. And most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of the book of Ruth. I want to read you the story of the book of Ruth, a quick summary of the story. Uh, we have this char- character, Elimelech. Well, when Elimelech married Naomi, they brought forth two children, Marlon and Chilion, and they were forced to leave Bethlehem, Judah. I'm sure you know the account. But then Elimelech died and Naomi became Mara. Her name changed. And later, both Ruth and Orpha, they were Gentiles, had the chance to return to the God of Israel. Orpha turned back and sought false gods, but Ruth returned with Naomi to the God of Israel. Ruth found grace in the eyes of her kinsman Redeemer, who then purchased her, and she was joined to Boaz. That was her husband. And what the near kinsman could not do, her Boaz did. Ruth married her Boaz and brought forth Obed. That's just a brief summary of the book of Ruth. Now, once again, Hebrew names have meanings. Our, our names have meanings in, in this, uh, you know, in our culture. My, my name Barry means sharp or spear-like, like that. Um, Elimelech just means God is my king. Naomi means pleasure. Bethlehem, Judah is the house of bread and praise. Mara, that name where we find in the text, her name is bitterness. Marlon, another sad name for a child, is sickness. Why would your parents do that to you? 
His brother, Chilion, his name means pining. Ruth, though, good parents, I guess here, her name means beauty. Orpha, though, her name means double-minded. Boaz, his name means strength. You may remember that that becomes one of the names of one of the pillars in Solomon's temple. And then we also have a, a near kinsman, who in this type is a type of the law. And then finally we have Obed, their son, whose name means worship. Let me read you exactly the same summary of the book of Ruth. But this time I'm going to put in the meanings of the names rather than the names themselves. It's exactly the same summary. When God is my king, married pleasure, think back to the Garden of Eden, they brought forth sickness and pining and were forced to leave the house of bread and praise. God is my king, died. Man became his own God. And pleasure became bitterness. Later, both beauty and double-minded Gentiles had the chance to return to the God of Israel. The double-minded turned back and sought false gods. But beauty returned to the God of Israel. Beauty found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer, the church, of course, who then purchased her, and she was joined to strength. What the law could not do, her strength did. Jesus, obviously. Beauty married her strength and brought forth worship. Isn't that amazing? This is God's word. You know, there's, there's so much more in the book of Ruth that we could pull, pull out, but I want to just take you through something else. We spoke earlier, as Peter said, about the more sure word of prophecy. Well, just go back historically to 606 BC in Babylon. Daniel had been there for a short period of time. Oh, sorry, no, Daniel was just about to be taken there. 606, it's the first siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. This is when Daniel is captured and, and some of the other princes and taken away. Daniel probably just around 14 years of age at that point. And it begins a time known as the servitude of the nation. And it was prophesied by Jeremiah that it would be a period of 70 years in captivity. Jeremiah 29, uh, we find that the, the Lord had promised that this was going to be happening, that they would be carried away because of their failure to allow the land to enjoy a Sabbath and so on. And God says, you owe me 70 years. So for 70 years, we were told that they were to be taking away the, the land. Sorry, that the people of Israel will be taken away. Uh, until, it says, God says, I accomplish at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. The promise was there that they would return. Now, there was another siege in 597, and then the final siege of Babylon occurs in 587 BC. Sorry, the final siege of Jerusalem, sorry, uh, occurs in 587 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar again comes, lays siege to Jerusalem. Zedekiah is the king, he's rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. This time Jerusalem itself, the city, is destroyed. And this begins a period of time referred to as the desolations of Jerusalem. Not the people specifically, but the city. And again, it's prophesied that this would be a period of 70 years from this point that this judgment will be upon the nation. And it says here in Jeremiah 25, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. It shall come to pass that when the 70 years are accomplished that I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation. The Lord goes on to speak about what's going to happen to Babylon. Okay, building a picture. The next verse I want to draw from is in Haggai, because Haggai, it's a short book, Haggai just steps onto the scene, just some prophecies, encourages the people to rebuild the temple. Verse 15 of Haggai 2 says, And now I pray you consider from this day. The Lord says to Haggai, I want you to make a note of the date. Write it down. 
and upward from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. And verse 18 says, Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day and the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. God says, I want you to mark this date, the date that you are starting to rebuild. Again, that day is so important. It was the day the desolations ended. And I want to show you this. You see, at the very time the Babylonian army were surrounding Jerusalem, Ezekiel, hundreds of miles away in Babylon, is also to record a date. He was told to record the 10th day of Tibet in their calendar in 587 BC. That was the day it started. Haggai, as we've just seen, actually nails the date that it ended. So we've got the beginning and the ending of this period of time. The interval, by the way, is exactly 25,200 days. It's 70 years to the day using 360 days for the year. You may not have come across that before, but the Bible, when it deals with prophetic years, always seems to deal with days of 360 uh, years, sorry, 360 days. And incidentally, even people like Isaac Newton knew this and draw attention to this. This is why we have 360 degrees in a circle as well. There's lots of interesting history that goes along with this. But the Bible consistently uses this idea of 360 days in a year. Let's just look at this, make it a bit easier to see. So we've got that third siege in 587 BC. That period of time, 70 years was prophesied. And to the very day, that period of desolation of Jerusalem comes to an end on the 24th of Kislev in the Jewish calendar, 518 BC. Now, regarding that other period of 70 years, we know when it ended because we have the decree of Cyrus given in 537 BC. Well, once again, that period of 70 years, exactly to the day, is fulfilled. That siege, first siege in 606 BC, fulfilled to the day in 537. On its own, that is incredible. And there's no other book in the world that has prophecy in it. We'll talk a bit more about what prophecy is right at the end. But I want to add something here because we've got a 19-year period at the beginning and the end of that. If we jump to the book of Ezekiel, he gives us a mathematical prophecy concerning the nation of Israel. And you can read this. I'm not going to read all the text now, but if you want to go through, I'll make the slides available if you want to, to have a copy of these. So if you're kind of scurrying or writing down, you can't do it. Don't worry, I'll let you have the notes and the slides afterwards. But basically, he's told to kind of act out this situation. He's told to kind of build a little model of Jerusalem and lay on his side and so on. And we go through the text. It's to be to represent the iniquity of Israel. And we're given these two periods of time, 390 days. And each day he's told he's rep- to represent a year. And then added on to that another 40 days to represent years and so on. So basically, Ezekiel's prophecy gives us a total of 430 years of judgment decreed by God through Ezekiel for the nation of Israel. Now, 70 years we know are accounted for in Babylon. So we're left with 360 years of judgment that are unaccounted for. And you can read through commentaries and nobody seems to kind of have an idea of where these years are supposed to be fulfilled, this judgment that God had prophesied. But it's interesting because if we go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 26, there's a portion of scripture that speaks about if Israel don't obey, what would happen? And you can again read this at your leisure. Basically God says, if you will not hearken unto me, this is what's going to happen to you. And he tells them all the things that's going to come upon them as a nation. But the interesting thing is, he says, and if you will yet not for all of this. In other words, there will judgment will come upon you. But if even after that you still don't turn back to me, which is, of course, what happened. Even after Israel had come back after that 70 years 
of captivity, they still didn't return to the Lord properly. If after all of that, the Lord says this, that I will punish you seven times more for your sins. It's kind of a mathematical formula that's given, very simple really. Basically, that seven times more is repeated four times in that one chapter. That if after their initial period of judgment they don't return to the Lord, God would multiply their punishment by four times. Sorry, um, by seven times. Sorry, apologies. So, again, as prophesied, Israel were punished for their disobedience for 70 years in Babylon. That leaves that 360 years unaccounted for. Israel didn't hearken to him, as I said. Now, if we apply Leviticus 26, we're going to multiply that remaining 360 years by seven. We come to a total. Some of you may have already worked this out. I apologize if you've already been sitting there. Yeah. We find a potential of 907,200 days until if we were to take this, as it says, Ezekiel's prophecy would be fulfilled. That's a long period of time. What happens if we, we try and do that? Well, again, going from that third siege, 587 BC, we've got that first 70 years, that desolation of Jerusalem. Well, we then, from the 24th of Kislev, 518 BC, when the temple starts to be rebuilt, from that point, we add on that 2,520 years or 907,200 days. Do you know where we come to? We come to the restoration of Jerusalem on the 7th of June, 1967. That is amazing. To be honest, it's breathtaking if you stop and consider what that actually means. But there's more than just that because 19 years before Israel and Jerusalem was given back and it became the capital, although the world still doesn't recognize it as the capital, but it came, became Israel's again, Jerusalem. Nineteen years before that, there was another significant event that took place. And some of you may remember, on the 14th of May, 1948, the nation of Israel became a nation again. Well, what's also interesting, if we kind of just throw, just for fun, that number back in there, 907,200 days, do you know where that comes to? The decree of Cyrus in 537. And again, that servitude of the nation. That's staggering. God is in complete control of history. And through his word, he's given us prophecy so that we can know. This isn't just about, well, I don't know, I might believe it or not. And by the way, if you're kind of skeptical, is that really? Can we? Yeah, we can prove this, by the way. I bought a program, which you can get off the internet, um, um, called Redshift. Uh, it's not a Christian program. It's just an astronomy program, not astrology, astronomy. Just looking at the stars and so on like that. Um, you can actually use this. You can jump forward and back in time and you can look at where stars would have been at any point historically and so on. Um, people that are interested in those kind of things obviously spend hours doing it. Uh, I purposely got it just to see if I could prove or, or not this. So I started with that uh, 16th of August, 587 BC. Okay, this is regarding the desolations of Jerusalem. That's that final siege. I then put that step time, you can see down here, that 25,200 days in there. And I jump forward to see where it would take me. And it takes you exactly to the 14th of August, 518 BC. That's amazing. That's exactly what we, we've just seen. And then if we use the next step, we go for that 907,200 days. That takes us exactly to the 7th of June, 1967. Is exactly what we read in the scripture. And we can verify the same thing applying to the servitude of the nation. Going from 606 BC again, we put on that first jump for that 70 years to 537. And then our next jump, the 907,200 days, to exactly 
the 14th of May 1948. Uh, this is just breathtaking stuff. Okay, just one final thing, and then we can just close. I think I'm not sure how much time I've got left, but we're almost there. It's the kind of thing Paul says halfway through a letter, finally, brethren. Okay. In Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Now, a lot of people think he was maybe just trying to be a little bit clever or, you know, trying to a bit of one-upmanship on the other uh, apostles. No, no, this is a really good Jewish question. Because notice what is said there. And by the way, some modern versions do tend to mess this up a little bit because I can't quite see where this is going. But the question is, shall I forgive until seven times? Well, that means there's something more to this than we can see on the surface that maybe you and I, because we're not Jews, didn't understand. You know, it wasn't just an attempt to impress. It wasn't just a reactionary comment. I believe this was a really considered question. That word in the Greek, heos, is a specific point in time it's referencing. Until. Now, I believe that what Peter's asking is, should I forgive until the Jubilee? The, the Jews, you know, the Jubilee was seven times seven years. Should I forgive until seven times? The Jubilee, the 50th year, was when all debts were cancelled and everyone would go free. Liberty would be proclaimed. So I think Peter's question is a really good question. Lord, should I forgive until the Jubilee? Is that what you're, you're asking? But Jesus said unto him, I say not until, 70, until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now some modern versions will say until 77 times or up to 70 times seven or whatever. You know, implying that well, you can forgive 490 times and somebody then wrongs you that you can bop them. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is a very specific answer. No, you have to forgive until 70 times seven. Literally, we're to forgive not just 490 times, but until 490. Now, what does that mean? Well, what's fascinating is if we go from when Abraham was born. Abraham was 75 years old when he enters the land of Canaan. And what we find is, that this promise is made to him that his descendants would come and inherit the land. Now, that conclusion is given to us in Exodus 12 when we're told that 430 years after that, to the very day, that was fulfilled. But there's a period of time in the middle of that where Abraham was kind of out of favor with God because of the whole situation with Ishmael. There's actually 15 years that we can deduce from the text. That gives us a period of 490 years. If, again, you take the 75 plus 430 Take away the 15, you've got 490 years. Well, okay, on its own, what does that mean? Well, what's interesting then, if we go from that point of the Exodus to the time that the temple was built, we go through the times of the judges and the kings, uh, we find that in kings we've got this uh, number given, we, we, we know from the details there, we've got 594 years, plus the seven years for the building of the temple gives us a total of 601 years. But during the times of the judges, you'll remember that Israel disobeyed God and the Lord allowed other judges to other nations to come and put them into servitude well that totals because we're given the details 111 years if you take 111 off 601 you come to 490 well that's interesting isn't it that's just starting to get quite curious but then we go from the temple to this edict that was given in Nehemiah chapter 2 by King Artaxerxes of Persia we've got this period of time which once again if you take out the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity when Israel was out of favor with God, you're left with 490 years. Curious, isn't it? And so then we get to the one that we're really most interested in because you go from that point 
to the time of the second coming. How long is that? Well, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, gives us an incredible, well, Gabriel actually gives it to Daniel, and Daniel records it for us, an incredible prophecy that from the command to, the, to, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, we're given a mathematical number, it's actually 173,880 days. It's exactly 483 years. But then, of course, from that point, we know Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And by the way, that prophecy was fulfilled on the very day on Palm Sunday that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And from that point, Luke 19 tells us that Jesus pronounced blindness upon Israel as a nation. And they've been blind spiritually ever since. There will come a time that that will be lifted and they will look upon him whom they've pierced and they will mourn. Israel will once again come to accept their Messiah. But not until, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So we've got this church age at the moment. But we have got a final seven-year period, which we refer to often as the tribulation. When that clock for Israel will start ticking. And once again, you add that up, we've got another period of 490 years. God is in complete control of history, which also means he's in complete control of your lives. We can trust God. We can trust the Bible. These things are absolutely staggering. One more just very small little thing I just want to share with you because this is lovely. The very first verse of the Bible in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can see there the Hebrew, Hebrew reads, from right to left, all languages flow towards Jerusalem. Seems to be the way God has designed it. But in the middle, we've got two untranslated letters. Now, I'm not sure whether you know much Hebrew, but you've got an Aleph and a Tau. If we were to put that into Greek, it would be an Alpha and Omega. That verse effectively says, in the beginning, God, the Alpha and Omega, created the heavens and the earth. Those letters are there. They're just untranslated. And that occurs, by the way, in Zechariah chapter 12 and a number of other places where the Jews say they will look upon me, the Alpha and the Omega, whom they've pierced. There's lots of details in the Bible. Every single detail, as I've already said, is there by deliberate supernatural design. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And again, every number, every place name, every detail Every yod, every tittle, all there by supernatural, deliberate design. I just want to encourage you to love the Bible. It really is incredible. And it's more than just a book that gives us lots of information about things that have happened. It's our connection with eternity because it tells us most importantly about our own condition and it tells us about the remedy, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. So please, if you're not already in love and reading and studying the Bible, the one message I would give to you today is trust it, read it, love it, grow with it, grow in it. God has given us so much and there's so many things to discover. And again, this is that we would grow in knowledge and grace. Let's bow our hearts. Father, just thank you for this time this morning that we've been able to just look at these things. Your Bible truly is incredible. And Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. Lord, we don't have to hope or, or wonder. Lord, the evidence is overwhelming. Lord, stir our hearts this morning. And Father, cause us to want to read the Bible more. Lord, to study it, to enjoy just being with it. Lord, more than our necessary food, more than TV programs or hobbies or sports or whatever we would do in our, our spare times. Let us love your word. Let it permeate every part of our lives and thinking. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. May God bless you.